Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The COVID-19 pandemic has interrupted supply chains and disrupted the U.S. economy. Production levels are back on track, but the labor force participation rate has remained stagnant since the summer of 2020. And millions of Americans are quitting their jobs in a labor market that was already facing a shortage of workers. What's going on with this great resignation? And should we brace ourselves for continued inflation as supply chain problems drag on and Congress pumps trillions into the economy? To answer those questions and more, I'm joined today by Michael Strain. Mike is the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy and the Director of Economic Policy Studies here at AEI. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. The unemployment rate is falling. Lots of jobs seem to be uh, created every month. But yet, it seems people are concerned that Americans somehow are not coming back to work. I've heard the phrase, the great resignation. I'm not sure exactly what that means. If some people are resigning, other people are just not going back to work. What is the state of the labor market right now? Well, I think the state of the labor market is uh, confused. If you look at some indicators, you see uh, a labor market that's really exceptionally strong and, and that's in great shape. Um, we can we can tick through a few of those. The number of unemployed workers for every job vacancy is well under one. In other words, there are more vacancies than there are unemployed workers. Uh, a big problem that the U.S. labor market has had in the past uh, couple of decades has been the opposite: that uh, there are too few jobs for available unemployed workers. We have we have the opposite problem right now. Jobs are chasing workers. Uh, workers are not chasing jobs. We have record numbers of job openings in the economy. Uh, we have a record number of workers who are quitting their jobs. And the reason why uh, quitting is considered a sign of a strong labor market is that people wouldn't voluntarily quit their job unless they were pretty confident they could get a, a better job. Um, uh, or, or, or at least the job that was at least as good. So the fact that workers are feeling like they're able to, to, to quit in large numbers suggests that, um, that they have the upper hand uh, in the labor market right now. Perhaps most compellingly, uh, the strength of the labor market can be seen in wage growth. Right now, wages are growing at about a 5% annual rate, if you look at wages in the leisure and hospitality sector, uh, they are growing at 11% annual rate. So really rapid wage growth. It's common, it is, it is common to hear businesses say, you know, there's a labor shortage, we can't find good workers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the right instinct is to be skeptical of those claims because those claims typically occur uh, without wage increases. Um, and so when you typically hear businesses talk about labor shortages or not being able to find workers, you know, what they really mean is that we're unable to find workers at the wages that we're currently uh, able to offer. Um, and, and they're not taking steps to, to be able to increase their wage offerings. That isn't what's happening now. You really are seeing businesses put their money where their mouths are and, and wages are growing nominally, they're growing really rapidly. So all of that really points to uh, a very strong labor market. 
but you, you mentioned the confusing. So the confusion is that it also seems as if people are unhappy about their jobs. They're not returning to their jobs. It's almost been described as, that the, as if the American labor force has had a great awakening that they've all discovered that those jobs they had before were terrible. Now they don't want to go back. So what are those confusing factors? Well, I think the, 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 most, the most confusing factor is um, that workers aren't coming back uh, in any uh, uh, you know, aggressive fashion. If you, if you look at workforce participation uh, among prime uh, age workers, workers who are too old to be in school, too young to be retired, uh, what you see is that um, uh, there really has been no improvement in uh, in their workforce participation um, uh, since uh, the summer. If you if you if you look at at, at how this uh, has evolved over the course of the pandemic, you know you see that uh, workforce participation among this group of workers fell around four, by around four um, percent during the during the lockdowns. Then uh, in the spring of 2020, uh, that recovered to a little over a little over uh, uh, 98% of its of its of its uh, pre-pandemic level. So employment was down about two percent for this group, um, and that's basically where it still is today. One source of um, uh, the labor shortage surely is early retirements, but when you're looking at people who are uh, in their 30s, 40s, and early 50s, that's that's that that's not going to be a big part of the story. So there must be other reasons keeping these workers on the sidelines, um, other than other than early retirement. Is the story that you're about to tell does it uh, differ by um, sort of skill level, education level, income level? Is it a different case for lower wage workers for than for you know uh, upper wage workers, or is it a similar story? You see this uh, largely across the board. I mean, you know, as 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 often happens, um, the uh, the job losses when the recession began were concentrated among lower wage workers and um, lower income households, and so the gains are disproportionately among those households. Workers uh, that are that are higher income are, are just less sensitive to the business cycle in general. Um, but you know, we fundamentally we still have this economy where workforce participation really isn't improving, and where we are uh, several million jobs in the hole, you know, six million, seven million jobs uh, below where we uh, should be and below where we would have been if it weren't for the pandemic. And so this is a confusing situation. You know, on the one hand, uh, labor demand is white hot. Employers are rapidly raising wages. Uh, they uh, are creating job vacancies that they're, that they're trying to fill. Um, at the same time, we're six or seven million jobs in the hole. Workforce participation isn't really improving. And we have millions of people on the sidelines who shouldn't be there. Um, so this is, uh, this is why I characterize it as, as confusing. So why aren't they coming back to work? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. Some of these factors are related to the, to the pandemic, for sure. I mean, I think that you, you, you do still see uh, in surveys, you know, some people are are still worried about 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 the pandemic and and don't feel comfortable coming back uh, coming back to work uh, as a consequence of that. Um, you know, this has been kind of a consistent story throughout the last year and a half. 
pretty much since the lockdowns were lifted um, in the late spring of, uh, of 2020, um, that we see the share of the population that uh, is unable to work due to COVID uh, dropping. Um, but, when, but when there's a, a COVID spike, uh, like we like we've had with uh, the Delta variant, you you see you see that uh, that decline suspended. Uh, you see people saying, you know, oh well, yeah, I think I think COVID is making it hard for me to work. There are lingering childcare issues for sure. Schools are open for the most part. Daycare centers are open for the most part, but they're still really affected by the pandemic. Um, and this is something that you know I think parents of, of school age kids all, you know, experience every day. Um, certainly, certainly I do uh, with, with my kids' school. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the likelihood that we, we might get an email or a phone call that says, hey, you have to come pick up your kids or, hey, your kid's classroom is going to be shut down for, for a week or two. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a daily reality for us. Um, and, you know, that's just not the kind of thing that People had to worry about before the pandemic, and so I think that is that is keeping some people from re-entering the workforce. You know, I think some people are saying, you know, I'll you know I'll go back to work once once uh, uh, you know I can be confident that you know I'm not going to be called home randomly or my kid's classroom is going to be closed down. Um, another big factor are uh, the generosity of unemployment benefits. Uh, President Biden, as part of the American Rescue Plan, increased the generosity of unemployment benefits by $300 a week. On average, uh, unemployment benefits are typically about $350 a week. So going from $350 to $650 is, is a really large increase. Uh, and that uh, uh, has kept uh, people on the sidelines. That program expired last month. Um, but uh, you know, it takes people a while to start their job search and, and to find a job. And so I think that's Another factor keeping people on the sidelines. It seems like every month numbers come out and people will look at those numbers and they'll say, well, see, we don't detect any impact of these unemployment benefits. So what is the case that you're wrong, but why aren't you wrong? Uh, you know, look, uh, this, is, this has certainly been a source of controversy. Let me, let me uh, uh, present three different buckets of evidence uh, and, and, we, can, and we, can, we can sort through them. One bucket of evidence uh, comes from the U.S. labor market from the 1970s until the eve of the pandemic. And if you look at, at, at studies of that period, uh, there's a, a strong consensus in the um, evidence that when unemployment benefits become more generous, people um, stay unemployed for longer. Uh, and, um, you know, there's debate about the magnitude of that effect, the size of that effect, but I think that's, uh, you know, pretty, uh, pretty close to a consensus view. When the pandemic began, the CARES Act, signed by President Trump in March of 2020, significantly expanded the generosity of unemployment benefits. And studies of that unemployment benefit expansion uh, do not find that it led people to be unemployed for long. So that's in, in conflict with the evidence that, that, that came before that. So the question I think about um, the, uh, the effect of President Biden's $300 expansion is, you know, really kind of boils down to uh, a question of whether the economy in the summer and fall of 2021, the economy 
June, July, August, September, you know, October, where we are now, was more like the pre-pandemic economy, more like a normal economy, or more like the economy that existed in the spring and summer of 2020 during the uh, initial months of the of the pandemic. And it has elements of both. I, I don't think there's any 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 question about that. Um, but you know, in my view, uh, the the economy was much 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 closer to normal in the uh, summer and fall of 2021 than uh, than it was to a pandemic economy. Um, so our expectation should be that the relationship between unemployment benefits and the duration of unemployment uh, looks a lot more like the half century before the pandemic than it than, than, than it looks like uh, uh, than it looked like in 2020. There there is evidence you know accumulated about this. About half the states, I think 26 states. Um, turned off that $300 uh, and, and reduced uh, expanded eligibility. When did they do that? In June. Um, and so you, know, you could look to see uh, uh, whether or not, you know, we have data for July, August, and September, and you can look to see, okay, in July, what does it look like in, in August? Uh, you know, did those states that, um, that stopped participating, uh, did they see employment recover faster? And there's some disagreement about this. Uh, you know, I've done some uh, work of my own on this, and you know, it looks to me uh, pretty clear that um, the, the states that uh, stopped participating in this program in in, in June, you know, really did see uh, transitions from unemployment to employment uh, accelerate. Um, that looks especially true uh, if you if you focus on. Um, the leisure and hospitality and retail sectors that are uh, that are really heavily affected by the pandemic, um, uh, and so you know I think there's some mixed evidence on that, um, but uh, but um, you know in, in my view the evidence points to uh, unemployment benefits as a as a real factor in, in keeping people on the sidelines, um, and you know I think you know you know it's hard to make super strong conclusions with just two or three months of data, so we'll have to. You know, we'll have to uh, let some time pass, but I think that's, in my view, that's pretty clearly where the evidence is pointing right now. Another important factor is uh, uh, savings. We, uh, the government, has given households a lot of money. Those cash balances have just really exploded. I mean, they're uh, what maybe up fifty percent. Uh, yeah, excess savings are, you know, two two and a half trillion dollars uh, right now throughout throughout the economy and. And so that, you know, that is, that is, I think, making it easier financially for some people to take a little longer searching for a job and to take a little longer re-entering the workforce. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a combination. Of, but th those of, balances will be, are going to be worked down here. So those people will be coming back. For sure. Those balances are going to be worked down. And, um, you know, that's, that's going to lead, that's going to be another factor pushing the labor market toward normalization. Uh, as we as we uh, end 2021 and, and 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 go through 2022. So let's go back to the Great Awakening theory, and that that is something more systemic. I think people arguing that are saying that. Well, well, let's take the early retirements, maybe set those aside. But for the other kinds of workers, they're not going to go back because they've had this time away, and they now realize they hated those jobs. They're wildly underpaid, and unless the wage structure of the United States changes. To which, you know, the you know jobs are just people just pay a lot more for for jobs, particularly on the low end. Those people aren't 
going to come back. I'm not sure what they're going to do, but they're not going to come back. That, that to get those labor force participation rates back somewhere close to normal, the U.S. has to stop being a low-wage country. It has to start being something better than that. Do you see something like that happening? No, I don't. Um, and I, I hope that I don't as well. Um, in other words, I hope that I'm right, that that, that isn't happening. I think that, that people make decisions uh, and they take into account all their options. And um, at a time when uh, you could earn uh, more money not working than working, which was true for a large share of the workforce, uh, over the course of the, of the year, um, you know, going back to a job similar to the one that you used to have doesn't, doesn't look all that appealing. If after your unemployment benefits normalize and after you burn through some of your savings, you know, not working is, is, is a worse deal. And the going back to a job that was similar to the job that you, that you used to have all of a sudden becomes more attractive. And I think that that, that is going to be uh, uh, a lot of the dynamic that you see. Um, if you are a, a, a low-wage services worker, and, and let's say you're a single mom, um, you know, going back to work uh, at a time when your phone could ring at any minute and, you know, you have to go pick your kid up from school and your kid's stuck at home for two weeks. And, you know, you know, then you, you know, then you're, you know, you're worried you're just going to get fired at that point or something, you know, that, that kind of uncertainty, uh, in, in, in your job security, uh, is, uh, much more of a drawback at a time when your kid's school situation is much more uncertain. If we get to a point where, uh, parents can can really count on school staying open and kids being able to stay to stay in their classrooms. Then, uh, then you know that affects the way that that job looks to you too. The job starts to look uh, better as well. Um, and so you know, I think I think right. I think people are you know over the past several months have been um, you know they they have been thinking about the jobs that they used to have and and uh, their. You know there are aspects of those jobs that are unpleasant and and and, and that aren't attractive, um, but they're making those evaluations in a context, and that context is a pandemic context. It's a context of schools uh, being uncertain. It's a context of uh, you know still being able to get uh, a decent income from not working. And I think when that context changes, and 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 the context is changing right now. Um, uh, and the context uh, will continue to evolve, uh, 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 hopefully pretty rapidly over the next several months. As that context changes, um, their their assessment of their uh, employment uh, opportunities, you know, I suspect will also change. And we should we should hope that it does. Um, you know, one of the one of the um, kind of interesting. Uh, uh, economic uh, realities right now is the uh, ability of the economy to produce uh, goods and services without all these workers. Um, the level of economic output, GDP, is, is back to where it would have been if there were never a pandemic. And businesses are able to produce goods and services as if there never were a pandemic, even though we're six or seven million workers in the hole. Um, and 
my concern is that businesses, uh, you know, will have figured out how to how to how to get by with fewer workers. Um, and if there are workers who are lingering on the sidelines because their unemployment benefits were generous, or because their kids' school can't stay open, or because they have so much money in the bank from all the uh, all the stimulus checks. Um, you know, those workers uh, may be lingering, um, and by the time they're ready to come back, uh, labor demand might have cooled off, and businesses might say, "Hey, we just need fewer workers than we used to than we used to need." Um, and the jobs that they're counting on returning to may not be there for for all of them. In that kind of situation, then either you know these people need to uh, increase their skills, right? So they're uh, they're they're more attractive. I suppose that would be one thing. I imagine that would take some time, uh, or or what? We start paying people a basic income then not to work. This is the great the great transition to a basic income uh, because at the same time. That you're you're ta- you're expressing this concern that these people might not have jobs to go back to if companies figure out they don't need them. There are also people pushing for even higher minimum wages because again they critique the United States economy as a low wage economy. Maybe we need a twenty dollar minimum wage or a twenty five dollar minimum wage. That would seem that would seem to exacerbate the very issue you're worried about. Yeah, I think it would. I mean, so think about you know think about wages as as coming from two places. Uh, one place that wages come from is from the productivity of, of workers. Um, that's kind of a you know, market factor. And then another, another, another determinant of wages are things like bargaining power, the you know, power balance between workers and firms and that sort of stuff. Um, if you want wages to go up, then you either need to uh, get people more skills so they can be more productive, or you need to uh, change the power balance between workers uh, and firms. And um, neither of those things are happening right now. You're seeing, you're seeing wages go up because uh, at, the, at the macroeconomic level, uh, demand is surging and supply can't keep up. And that is not increasing worker skills. Uh, it is tilting the balance of power away from businesses and towards workers, but not in a permanent way. Um, uh, There are no institutional changes in the US economy that are permanently altering that balance. It's not as if, you know, unionization rates are are wildly increasing, or uh, it's not as if um, there are all sorts of, you know, new laws being passed that, that, uh, that restrict uh, the freedom of businesses to design employment contracts for workers and you know things of this nature. Um, it's temporary. And as demand moderates, which it will over the course of 2022, uh, and as uh, the supply side of the economy uh, is able to, um, to expand as it will over the course of 2022, we're gonna you know start to look you know more and more like uh, like we used to. Uh, prior to the pandemic, and uh, the power balance between workers and firms is going to is going to normalize as well. So, you know, we're going to be left with a workforce that isn't more skilled, and and and, and uh, uh, dynamics between businesses and, and and workers that look, you know, more like they always have. Um, nothing that's happening 
uh, this summer or fall is, is, uh, is permanent. Do you have a different philosophy of the value of work than some other people? As I, as, I, as I hear about this great resignation and sort of critiques of the U.S. labor market, that there is there's a, there's a group out there, I don't know if they're economists or, or, or activists, who just don't look at work the same way. And maybe these are also the people pushing for uh, a universal basic income. But there seems to be an actual disagreement of the, the value of work and whether people should really be forced to work. It's, it's almost like it's a human rights issue. Look, yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think this is one of the big dividing lines in American public life right now is about the the uh, the importance of, of work and, and the and the inherent value of work. Um, and you know that is um, that is a that is a that is a dividing line that I think has become has become uh, sharper and more salient as a consequence of the pandemic. You know, there are there are unpleasant jobs. Uh, in in the United States, certainly, uh, you know, but there there are there are jobs that are that are physically demanding and that are and that are unpleasant for for a myriad of, of circumstances, um, for sure. And there are people in in public life who argue that you know that's you know that's you know not um, not a good thing. And uh, in you know one of the goals of public policy should be to you know, make it so that people don't have to hold those kinds of jobs um, if they don't want to. And, you know, I think that um, that, that view gets some things right. Uh, you know, we shouldn't want somebody to be in a minimum wage job for 20 years. That shouldn't be the goal. Uh, we shouldn't want people to be uh, stuck in jobs that they, that they don't want to hold. Uh, another way to say that is that is that is that the labor market should be characterized by upward mobility. People can people can you know climb a ladder and not just get stuck on on one of the rungs. Um, but I think that that view misses a lot. I think it misses uh, a lot about um, the uh, inherent dignity in in all work and about the ability of people to make real contributions to society. Uh, in in all those jobs, um, you know, I think you're right to characterize it as a as a philosophical disagreement. A lot of it is is an empirical disagreement as well about uh, you know about the level of upward mobility and about the the ability of those sorts of jobs to serve as a conduit to other and better jobs. But there is a real philosophical divide here too, and and uh, you know, in my view. Uh, the goal of public policy should be uh, participation, that people uh, participate in society, um, uh, and that a lot of that participation takes place through participating in, in, in market activities, through participating in the economy. Um, and that's a normative view. It's a view about what is um, uh, important to, to lead a flourishing life uh, and to lead a good life. Uh, a, a full life. Uh, and, you know, I think a full life um, and a flourishing life involves contributions. And, and I think uh, uh, if you're working a minimum wage job at a grocery store or you're flipping burgers at a, at a McDonald's or, or, or you're, uh, you know, a custodian in a hotel or, 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 or whatever, um, you're making a contribution. You're, you're contributing to society uh, through those jobs. And, 
I think it's um, unfortunate that there that there are uh, prominent voices in in public life who refer to those kinds of jobs as dead end jobs and who make arguments uh, about how uh, those jobs are kind of you know beneath the dignity of Americans or things of that nature. I think that's not true, and I think it's a it's a it's a it's a bad message to send. You know, telling millions of people that they're that their jobs are 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 dead ends. You know, they're they're not dead ends. They're they're making they're making valuable contributions, and uh, they can serve as stepping stones to even even larger contributions and, and and even better jobs. So the goal of public policy shouldn't be to make it so that people don't have to work, um, or you know, to make it so that people don't have to work in uh, lower wage uh, jobs. The goal of public policy should be to uh, get people uh, involved in economic life uh, to set people up so that they can make contributions to society through their uh, through their uh, employment and through market activities, um, and to and to build to build skills and and and, and to kind of create you know on ramps uh, of opportunities so that people uh, can can have a have a career and, and kind of progress uh, up up the employment ladder and, and not and not get stuck on any one rung. My guest today has been Michael Strain. Mike, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Hey.